0: Talk it out, walk a mile, serve it ancient city style. Talk it out, babble on, battle for your life, Babylon. That's gossip, what you on, money don't talk, rip that song. Gossip, babble on, battle for your life, Babylon.
1: The wonderful Lady Gaga there with Babylon. You are and In Your Face on 3CR with James and it's Lesbian Visibility Week and I am honoured to be joined by Bent TV legend Lindsay Karalev. Lindsay, welcome back to the show.
0: Oh, thanks, James. things uh, seems like eons since we last spoke.
1: Well, it's always gold to have you on the show. Uh, a golden be, oldie. A <laughs> golden oldie with just so much charisma and so much history. Um, let's, let's be invisibility week. Gee, it's, uh, gee, there's been a lot of change in the community
0: there James you know and um, when when you first asked me to come on today you know I sort of reflected about you know my life um, you know when I was a part of the community and working in the community etc and it it really got me thinking about those times when you know myself and I don't know how many other lesbians out there that worked in the community it went beyond invisibility more than anything you know I know for myself I was um, sitting on boards where we would just be talked over um And there were situations, even with Bent TV, like myself or any other lesbian would come up with an idea and it'd just be taken from us. You know what I mean? It was was that thing where, you know, I remember in the 80s, probably early 90s, we just did not exist within the community. And it was very difficult to be heard. Very difficult. But yet
1: behind the scenes, you know, lesbians did so much to build the community. Uh, It's (laughs) terrible that, you know, you were denied a voice.
0: Absolutely, James. And I know I'm not Robinson Crusoe with this. I know there's many lesbians out there that, um, you know, that really did a lot of good. And, and you know, and I, was, and I sort of did a little bit of um, social media today and I had a look and there's really nothing that anybody's really posted about Lesbian like Visibility Week. You know, a couple of guys have said, "Oh, you know, thanks, my lesbian friends. But, again, um, there's really nothing out there. Like, I haven't seen really anything from the archives. I'm not saying that, you know... Um, um, what's his name, Nick hasn't posted anything, but I haven't seen anything, so we still lack that visibility to a point. And why do
1: you think that is?
0: You know what, James, I don't know. I think I think that lesbian issues are very much women's issues. And I think if you look at where women are, we really haven't progressed very much over the last fifteen, twenty years. We seem to have gone backwards with, with our basic human rights. And as we as we media, as we see more of the world, we see cultures, religions around the world that women aren't even second-class citizens. You know, they're, they're below that. And I think that when it, that does reflect on us on, in many, many ways. And I think in Australia now, you know, we have this wonderful multicultural society. You know, it, it's fabulous. We've got all sorts of foods, people, we're constantly learning. But unfortunately for women, we have been pushed back, because culturally, there are women There that are still not seen as being equal citizens, and I do really think that women's issues reflect very heavily on lesbian issues.
1: And I guess it it does indeed. (coughs) And of course, you know, women women often, as they get older, have to battle invisibility anyway. That seems (coughs) to be even more so the case for lesbians.
0: Oh, absolutely, James. And you you see, look, I find myself with very few lesbian friends now because, you know, they've all entered their their long-term relationships, they've built houses, they've moved to Dalesford, you know what I mean? Like, they've sort of settled down and all the power to them because they're, you know, living very happy, successful, loving lives. Whereas people like me, they've always sort of been a little bit out there, um, you know, and now that I have a disability, you notice it even more that... you just don't, I mean, you don't get invited to things, you know, events. Just sort of sit around, like, even midsummer, I thought, you know, I'd really like to go to midsummer. But then it's trying to tee up somebody to, you know, like, to get my scooter there because I can't walk on a prosthetic stool for a long time. So it's sort of trying to get there, trying to get the scooter there. It was a logistical nightmare. But, and there's nothing offered to us you know and and that goes for the gay guys too, in this instance, but you know, like I heard that a couple of years ago that Midsummer actually put the disability toilet's up on a hill I, I you know, and I don't know how anybody that's disabled actually did get up a bloody hill to go to, you know, to the bathroom as such. But, you know, it's, it's just those little things that you think, oh my God, here I am and sitting sitting at home, it's midsummer day and there's nothing in place for you know, to get us lesbians there and, and gay guys as well, but especially, you know, us old dykes, so to speak.
1: Yeah, it's as if the community very much has a tendency to see itself through an ableist prism but also through a, through a Young lens, when the reality is, there's people of all ages and abilities.
0: Yeah, exactly, and and I think that that you know our community does have a, a bit of a, a Peter Pan pathology, you know, like you know, be young, be vibrant, and you know, like in gay years, like I'm probably about five thousand years old, so I've been put out to pasture, you know, at two thousand five hundred years old. But it, it it is a young a young community. It is a um. A young scene, and and yeah, and I'm not knocking that because you need young blood, you need new ideas. But it'd just be nice to be remembered and not called sort of grumpy old baby baby boomers, and you know what I mean? It's it just there's a lot of viciousness towards older people, and it's because of that viciousness, viciousness that's being created by media or whoever about baby boomers and even Gen X's now. And um, and you know, I've been at and been looked at even before my amputation for you know being old. You know, called old. So, you know, it's I think we've got to look at our own backyard sometimes. I think this is one of those instances, you know, especially being Lesbian Visibility Week. Do we really need to look at what's going on to in our community and say to young lesbians, like if I have a message like never compromise yourself and speak up. If they if you're being spoken over, whether it be you know in your work life or in um, you know the community speak up, you know, use your voice, and things will eventually change, hoping.
1: <laughs> it's such a shame, isn't it? Because, I mean, that lesbian history is so, you know, much a, a big part of our community and there is so much to learn from it. But yet that mm. kind of, you know, ageism um, kind of drives it under, underground and creates that vicious cycle of of of, you know, pushing down invisibility even more.
0: It's interesting, James, because when I was young and looking around, you know, for other lesbians out there... um they were very close-knit, like they were They were tight little groups and tight little organisations that were really difficult to locate. And this is before, you know, social media, where you had to rely on, you know, oh, God, I don't even know. Back then, when I was young, that there was actually any papers, like any gay media at all. So I was really looking to find, you know, to find your tribe. But to find the lesbians, and, and like, there was one group I remember, like, they really questioned me, like, really heavily. I was interrogated and I just thought, is this worth it? So there was what I noticed as a young lesbian, that there was quite a bit of paranoia, like lesbian paranoia in being noticed. So whether that we've created that through history or, or what's happened, I don't know. But very, you know, when I think about it, very little has changed.
1: Well, I guess it's a reaction to to misogyny, but also, you know, queer phobia or lesbian phobia, isn't it? You know, um, it's mm. very much, I guess, a symptom of discrimination. Of course, that hasn't gone away.
0: No, it hasn't. And, you know, like, there were times, like, in my community life that I would much rather deal with the straight guys, you know, like, being out at work. I always, thought, I always felt really special. And I've been really lucky because... Um, you know, firstly, if anybody ever asked me, I was really upfront and said, yes, I am gay. You know, so I made myself totally visible at work without going overboard and being incredibly militant or anything like that. But just alluding people to, you know, lesbian issues and women's issues and things like that. And But I found sometimes in the community, it, it was very, very difficult. You know, we, you know... We're just sort of squashed, really, if we had anything to say. But in the background, as you mentioned earlier, lesbians have done some remarkable work in the community, absolutely remarkable. Even during the, the AIDS crisis, there were so many lesbians that, that became carers for gay men. And, um, and that, was, that was a remarkable time, actually, an absolutely, I mean, a very sad time. But to see how the community came together and how we sort of became the carers and became really proactive was absolutely incredible.
1: And Absolutely, and I mean, you know, Alison mm. Thorne's testament to that. You know, an activist who was at that very first meeting at the Laird that led to mm. the creation of the Victorian AIDS Council Gay Men's Health Centre. well, they named it after her in in Keith Harbour?
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, and that that stuff is it's interesting. You know, like, and and I'm I'm very proud of that. You know, very proud of that because you know, like, like as we're celebrating a lesbian visibility week, we, we need to be visible, we need to be out there more, and we need to, we need to you know, make it known, even in the broadest community, that, you know, we're not you know, these days, you know, I think all gay people are sort of living in fear again, you know, we've gone backwards, but just to very gently let people know that, yes, I'm gay, I, you know, I have a partner, you know, I've had partners that were, you know, sometimes intro- <laughs> like invited to functions before I was, you know, so, but just its very It's very gently, I think, but you know hopefully it does it does change. As women's rights you know sort of start being addressed again, hopefully our rights and, and our visibility does does change and move forward.
1: Apart from visibility, what do you see as some of the biggest issues for lesbians, especially mature lesbians?
0: Um, James, I really I really don't know because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, my, my lesbian friends are in their long-term relationships or, you know, some so many of them have moved overseas, so I don't get to sit down and chat about that. And I can't find any lesbian, older lesbian social groups either to sort of join so that we can sit down and talk about this. I know that there's, um, there's a dance group or something, or the King's Men or something like that, but I don't know of any older you know, diet groups that I could join and, you know, have a coffee once a month and sort of start networking again to build up the friendship network and to actually talk about things and see what we could do as older lesbians to change that.
1: It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, you were the mm. most, you know, famous lesbian in Melbourne for a while there when you're on Channel 31 doing Squeal. If you're mm. experiencing that isolation, then imagine what it's like for, for just about oh. everybody else.
0: Yeah, it must be. And, you know, we know that, you know, I was actually reading an article that said that isolation and loneliness is the equivalent on your health to cigarette smoking. And you just think, oh, well, God, you know, how many minutes have I got left? But, you know, it is. And, like, I'm lucky. I have friends, of course, and, you know, we FaceTime and that occasionally. But, you know, sometimes, you you know, on a Saturday night, you think, oh, God, it's 11.30. I'd just be, you know, jumping in the car to go out at this, you know, at this time. And here I am, you know, at home, you know, know, watching something on Foxtel, you know, crime and investigation or something. So yeah, it, it is tough. And, and, and I don't know what the answer is now. And I just think, you know, I think that back in the day that, you know, um, when I was active in the community, there were a lot of lesbians that were, you know, pushing the envelope and standing up, you know, for ourselves and, and for younger dykes as well. And I don't know, I, I really, I really sometimes I do think about other lesbians out there, James, to be honest, like, how do we actually connect, just for a coffee or, you know, a a mini little dance party in a church hall somewhere, you know, just to sort of be social and connect with each other and, and, you know, talk, basically.
1: And I guess a big part of this is the fact that lesbian bars around the world have closed. Now, you manage the Glass House, you know, Melbourne's lesbian bar for, for, you know, six months during its, its heyday. That's gone. So, you know, People who are isolated can't even go to the pub now, to a lesbian now, pub now, because there isn't one.
0: No, and there used to be cafes. I don't know, you know, uh, some of your listeners may remember the Angel Cafe. That was a good meeting place for lesbians. Um, like years ago, I think the cafe was called Rosie O'Grady's. I th- it was in Fitzroy, and that was a fabulous meeting spot. So I think now, I think there's something called Sunday Licious. And uh, that's, you know, sort of like a club atmosphere. But, you know, I, I'd love to go out, like, you know, um, when we chat, we say, you know, one more dance party, please, you know, you know where we could sort of rage our socks off. But And I don't know that anybody really wants to stand up and say, well, you know, I'm going to open a, a cafe slash bar. And the other thing is, James, like, do we need that now? Like, we have sort of melded into, you know, the broader community, into society. So, you know, are these... Are these places needed? Because you know you can go into any bar around Melbourne now, and there it might be you know two women holding hands or two men with their arms around each other. You know what's the relevance now of a of a girly bar, so to speak?
1: But it is nice to have that you know community space that's called your community space, um, that mm. creates that kind of community sense of intimacy. Especially when you know people are doing it over 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 the internet, it takes mm. away that human interaction. So I think that that lesbian defines Space is really important.
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, I've thought about it often. You know, you know sometimes I might be driving past a, a vacant shop, you know, and I think, oh, God, you know, that would make a great little, you know, lesbian cafe, you know, music, you know, performers. although I'm not into poetry readings, so even poetry. But, you know, something where lesbians are supported, and I think to especially younger lesbians as well into this, um, you know, because they, they can learn so much from us and we can teach them so much. And I'm not talking about... Um, oh, I don't know, like the politics or anything like that, but just sort of a little bit of nurturing, you know, that it, you know, the first relationship, for example, and that breaks up, you know, if you've probably got an older duck's like, you know, shoulder to cry on or something, it might make it different, I don't know. But I'm hoping that, you know, eventually that there is some space where women, you know, younger women and older women can feel safe and can communicate, because I think that is so important. You know, as, as a demographic... Um, as You know, these demographic guidelines, you know, get so much wider now. Nobody's really communicating, you know, like the Genite wives and the millennials. And everybody seems to be uh, sort of pigeonholed, I guess. Whereas, you know, I come from the generation where we really hated being pigeonholed. So it's very difficult now. So it'd be great just to have that space where young old lesbians, older lesbians can just meet and have a bit of a hoot. <laughs>
1: Lindsay Carolev. it is always such a joy to hear your voice on the radio. Thank you so much oh. for joining me on 3CR today. Um, oh. It's just gold having you on the show. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. I hope I didn't waffle on too much.
1: It's always great to hear your insights, just that community history. Um, I just love it. Thank you so much.
0: Great. Thank you, James.
1: The wonderful Lindsay left there.
2: And I look across the border. And I think about.
3: To Radical Radio
4: Three CR, Baby. Baby, Baby, Baby. I don't want to talk about it. I just want to write upon it. I don't want to think about it. Wanna make you feel right I wanna go down on you right I wanna keep you feeling nice Touching nobody alright I wanna feel you tonight oh. Just want to make you feel right Just want to make you feel right
1: to Co, there, make you feel alright, and I am honoured to have Oscar and Connor in the studio. What a track. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank hey. you. Thank you for Thank having you, us. Man. You Thank two you. are thriving at the moment. Last <laughs> time we spoke, you released your first single, Now This, and you've been everywhere.
5: Yeah.
6: Yeah. yeah we've, a had a, we've had a pretty good run. The last single was a shock. It actually did really, really well for our first um, and it's motivated us to keep going. So now mm. we've decided to release single number two.
1: Yeah, Oscar, tell us about your vocals on that track. It's pretty sultry. Yeah, yeah. Look, we this this like Connor said
7: we went a different angle with this one. We kind of wanted to make it a bit more sultry, make it a bit more felt. Um, and yeah, I've I've landed some good vocals in that track. <laughs> that that opening little squeal is one of my favourite parts of that whole song. Um, yeah.
1: Do you find that being a married couple kind of gives you license to do that? Gives you the confidence to do that? To oh, be yeah. kind of you know quite intimate with your lyrics? Yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely,
6: definitely. And th- this was a song that um we wrote in lockdown, so we were definitely looking for something a little bit more positive and a bit more fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was definitely the muse for this was kind of just making each other feel alright, and also. A bit of behind closed door sense of flirt, I would say. Yeah. Being yeah. a married couple. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. It's <laughs> interesting because I've been watching a lot of your music videos and you've got that kind of emotional kind of you know connection, mm. clearly, but there's also that physical chemistry, it really comes across and it just thank makes you. your music incredibly listenable. Thank you. And cool. relatable, yeah. Yeah, cheers.
6: yeah.
7: thank yeah. you. We no, really we, appreciate we, it. We we did want to kind of convey that with this song. This song is more about having fun with whoever your significant partner might be. Or um, not. Or not, yeah, or not.
1: <laughs>
7: um, but it's just about having fun with yourself, making yourself feel all right. That's what the track's all about. Yeah.
1: And so tell us about the video. Have you made one yet?
6: We're actually, we're we're, prob- we're looking at making a couple of videos at the end of the year because this is our second single and it's going to be track four on our album that's dropping at the end of the year. Wow. so we're saving a bit of the music videos and visuals for later just to you know surprise people a little bit and get all the music out there first
1: yeah yeah definitely So you played the the instruments on the track as well yeah all Oscar
7: yes yeah, so, this is a genius over yeah, here yeah so, so the the song is was all made all made in a, in a DAw um, majority of the drums are keys. Um, and a couple of the other instruments are all di- are all digitalized the acoustic instruments or the, the the raw instruments are the saxophone our vocals obviously some guitar stuff and a couple of other bits and pieces here and there but the whole track all the tracks together would have been like more 30 40 tracks yeah
1: 40 tracks was yeah. Session, yeah, it was a big session this one yeah it was a big
7: session big session
1: Oscar how many instruments
7: do you play confidently i'd say So I can play piano, I can play a little bit of guitar here and there, I play saxophone, I can play drums, but it's been a while since I've sat on a kit, Um, vocals, um, and a couple other things. You know, one thing I try and do when I pick up an instrument is I try and feel it out. I try and figure out kind of how to make it sound good my way. So that's how I've taught myself how to play the majority of instruments that I can play. He's
6: one of those lucky ones.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So... Connor, I reckon he would pick up an instrument And even if he's not that confident with it He would be pretty quickly Yeah, pretty quick Wow Pretty
6: quick And I think that's where we both work really well together I think as a crazy musician that he is He gets lost in the music As all musicians should And myself as the producer will come in and arrange the song um, Throw ideas at him on what I think will be able to bring a little bit more to the table And I'm responsible for all the melody and lyrics Yeah, so. It's a good separation because sometimes when you do it all, it can get pretty confusing and you can get lost in the process a little bit. Yeah.
1: So you've got that gift of songwriting. You can yeah. obviously <laughs> sing, but you can actually do the technical production as well.
6: Yes, yes. We, that's what we both studied. Mm-hmm. So, um, And that's definitely my favourite part. I love coming into a session... When Oscar's developed a vibe and we put the song together and I do the final mix and edit
7: before sending it off for mastering, it's mm. by far the best part. Mm. Um, he is being modest. He does have a degree in it. He's studied it for many, many years. He's produced a lot of shows and yeah. all sorts of stuff. Like, I've seen this man work magic on some stuff. Yeah. So, yeah he's, yeah, he's really incredible. That sort of jigsaw puzzling thing that we've got going yeah on.
6: well it's kind of oscar will focus more on the music bed and creating the the music uh, as a whole and my job's to come in fix the melody make it hooky so it gets stuck in your head hence the chorus mm. um and try to my my goal is to make one epic moment so the epic moment for this was the breakdown going from no instruments all the way back to the full ensemble at the end
1: Mm. So that's a formula you use with all of your songs. Mm,
6: I love an epic moment. (laughs) I think we all do. Yeah,
1: which translates so well to ballads and love songs. Mm. 100%. Mm.
6: And we also, being live performers, and I think live performing is by far our favourite thing to do when it comes to being an artist. We are always thinking of how can we perform this live? How can we get the audience involved? How can we get some participation um, and that's where we come up with these epic moments. Mm. So, Oscar, tell us about
1: what's happening on stage.
7: Ooh, um, well, uh, if you've seen videos of us online, Connor has a great rhythm. <laughs> I, on the other hand, we we joke about it a lot. I look a little bit like a fish when I dance, <laughs> like a fish with sticks on my arms when I dance. But And my mum's recommended that we do choreographed routines. But... I think it's, we just feed off each other. We You know, we, we vibe with each other and we also vibe with the audience. That's one of the, like Connor said, we, one of the reasons why we love performing these songs in front of an audience is when they get involved, it's something it's something that comes out inside of us. It just like winds yeah, us euphoric. up. Exactly. Yeah. We love it. We love seeing the audience look back at us and go, yeah, we're really into this. And then we're like, yes, they're into this. Woo. And to see, and to have the audience singing along with you as oh, well, yeah.
6: especially when you're a new artist and your song hasn't even released yet and at a gig, people are singing it, it's probably the most rewarding thing mm, that you can definitely experience.
1: So you guys are on a roll with gigs.
6: Yeah, we are. We, yeah. We've actually had a, a really good um, run. So uh, we, we do all types of stuff. We, we have an artist residency with that singing studio that uh, Elise... Um, one of our, kind of our artist manager helps us um, get the, you know, the cafe gigs, the wine bar gigs, the really good paid gigs. They're the fun <laughs> ones. Um, and they're all covers. We do throw a few originals in there, but of the last four or five months, we've had a really good stride on performing original music at at more original bass gigs. So the Paris Cat Jazz Club, we got to perform it with RSOM Showcase, and it's such a such a unique venue and it was just a dream come true to go there. Mm. And um BG Community with Benny Greggs, we got to perform at one of their showcases, which the talent there was phenomenal. Very intimidating oh. and amazing. <laughs> um, and yeah, we're 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 really good at not saying no and saying yes. That's mm. kind of our motto in life is mm. say yes. Give it a crack. If it's really good, go back for more. And we have that's how we started this, and we keep getting opportunities. So yeah. we're going to keep saying yes.
7: That's literally the way we <laughs> operate. It's like, if we get the opportunity, just say yes. Just do it. Deal with it later.
1: <laughs> and you're not short of original material. I mean, you have a wow, well, a vault Yeah. by the do. sounds of it. I can't wait to hear this album. Yeah, mm. the
6: album's going to be eight tracks. Um, we've got two artists featuring on the album, um, Leah, Magoo, and Catherine. Um, they're, they're being a part of the album and we, out of the eight that are on the album, we've probably got another 10 on top of that. That's, Word you know, shopping. some ideas that we always keep in our vault for if we ever want to pull out.
1: Mm. So Oscar, I've got to ask, what have you been playing instrumentally lately? Like, you know, just when, what, what's, what's going through this genius All at right. the moment?
7: Well, last night I was playing piano cause we've got a gig coming up in June, which I was practicing for. So I was playing a bit of keys, but I've been jamming out on the guitar a lot. I just restrung my first ever electric guitar and that was a really special moment for me. But I I restrung that and I've started recording with it and playing around with it because we've got a a track that we're working on at the moment, which is bluesy, soul, muddy watery vibes Mm. and lends itself really well to this sort of dark bluesy thing that we've got going. The vibe that we've developed... I don't want to say the name of the song yet, yeah. but but I, I the thing that we've developed is really really cool, and I'm really keen on on working on it. So that's the next track that I'm workshopping at the moment. Is
1: that going to be on the album? Yes. Yeah. Oh, be. how exciting!
7: Yeah. And we've got our
6: next single um, coming out in June. Mm. Wow. June, which um, is a rock anthem. Mm-hmm. So it's even completely different from these <laughs> two again. We just we like to we like to experiment. I think. It's really easy in the modern day as a musician to get stuck into a genre because you have to belong to a genre where, because this is a bucket list dream for us to do what we're doing, we want to do everything.
1: So Mm. we're doing everything. Mm. So it sounds like there's a bit of competition going on in terms of the tracks that you've written competing against each other to make (laughs) the cut on the album. Yeah, yeah. definitely. That's the
6: hardest part, but it's... (laughs) At the end of the day, the album's going to tell a story, and the story it's going to tell is our last 10 years together. It's the Mm. concept. It's on this journey, um, 10 years of being together, and it's something that we want to do every decade after. So it's a mixture of finding the right sounds to keep it epic, because every track needs to be epic, um, but also to be able to tell a story that... You know, is loving and awesome and great, which we've shown, but also a bit of the darker side as well, because we all know life is a mix of good and bad. Mm. So I think you've got to show that as well.
1: But Mm. I can't imagine you guys waiting like a long time between albums. I mean, I reckon there's probably going to be a follow up after this one comes out reasonably quickly because there is so much original material there. Mm.
6: Yeah. Mm. Look, you can write for days, can't
7: you? Yeah, yeah. Look, Um, I I think we're not opposed to putting out more work after this one's done, but our, our our thought was always 10 years and then 10 years and we'd keep writing like that. But, you know, like you said, we've got a we've got a wealth of music in the vault and one day we'll know what to do with it all. <laughs> and
1: if
6: the, if the opportunities keep presenting themselves, we have to say yes. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, exactly.
1: Keep going. Connor and Oscar, Mr. Co. it has been a delight to have you back in the studio. Thank, Thank you, you so much for joining us. Thank you Cheers. for having us.
7: Thank you. <laughs>
5: we
1: Silver chair there you are And in your face on 3CR with James I am honoured to be joined by Yanto Ware Who has written a wonderful book called Mother and I About his life with his mother, Dimity Ware uh, They were living in Adelaide in the 80s and 90s She was a single lesbian mother And it's so wonderful, Yanto, to talk to you During Lesbian Visibility Week Wonderful, yes, thanks It's a great book, I read it yesterday It's a, it's a moving book um, Tell us about you, Mum
3: um, she was unique. I think, you know, after she died, and I started writing the book, how unique she was became quite striking. That there were not, and this was sort of, you know, 1980 when I was born. Homosexuality had only been legalized for five years. No fault divorce had only been legal for about eight years. So there were not a lot of um, queer mothers. There was a really strong uh, social stigma against single mothers. She had other things happen. So she had um, had a kidney transplant in 1976 and almost died. Um, and I think that was sort of part of how she approached life and, and approached having a child, is that she'd come so close to dying, she'd been forced to sort of think about what was going on with her life, realised that she had got married because she thought that's just what you did. So she got married in 71. She didn't realise there was an option. Um, she got involved in women's lib kind of begun to meet lesbians and thought, okay, I think this is this is something I relate to. And then I think was a bit afraid of it until she had this near-death encounter and then just thought, like, why am I pretending I'm a heterosexual? Got pregnant with me about a month. She got pregnant with me, I think it was the last encounter she had with heterosexuality. She realised she was pregnant about a month after she left my father. Um, Her doctor said, because she had a kidney transplant, don't have a kid, it'll kill you. She kind of ignored them, had me anyway. And then, yeah, grew up in a pretty, a not great kind of classic conservative working class suburb outside Adelaide.
1: But she created this oasis, didn't she? Because she loved mm. plants. And so you lived in this incredibly almost enchanting kind of, you know, garden, uh, you know, full of trees and pets. And um, you kind of yeah, blocked out yeah. the homophobia of the of the rest of the world.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that the, the neighbours hated it. But, you know, it's one of those suburbs where everybody just had lawn. So the whole street was just this really kind of dry, dead, neat lawn. and so then there was this house where... There was no lawn. She planted oak trees in the front yard. Like, You couldn't really see the house in the street because the, the foliage was so thick, which I think was partly like it, it did make us feel safer, like being in this weird little oasis. But I think it was also just a kind of resistive act, Like the suburb was so um, conformist and repressive that it was a sort of a way of, yeah, annoying everybody.
1: I loved your mum's politics. I mean, she taught in disadvantaged schools. She really taught, you know, outside the square, if you like. She hated, you know, um, colouring in and, you know, all of those kind (laughs) of, you know, repressive, yeah, yeah, kind of things. She thought outside the square and really kind of, you know, felt that kids needed that to, to grow. You've got a, a doctor of English literature. Uh, you've done all kinds of amazing things. Do you think that having a mum like that kind of helped you to think outside the square?
3: Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, I don't know if I'm as good at it as she was, but I think like one of the wonderful things about growing up with a queer parent, I think one of the wonderful things about growing up with a single mother is that you, to a certain degree, grow up outside of patriarchy. <laughs> like, you, and that's quite nice, that's quite a good way to grow up because you don't, I think especially if you're a boy, you don't grow up with that sense that there is a way you have to be and you just have to accept that identity and accept you're going to live a certain way. It was very, very positive. The And I think a lot of um, single parents, single mothers, queer parents get told that their kids are going to grow up to have something wrong with them. I found it was the contrary. It was, it was a great way to grow up. The issues were all when I had to sort of go out into the patriarchy and start dealing with it, and that was a bit confronting.
1: It's interesting because there's a section in your book where you reflect on someone saying to you, have you ever met a family like yours? And, of course, the answer was was no. So, I mean, lots of ways. You were living the queer family life before rainbow families were coined.
3: Yeah, yeah. I've never met anybody from a queer, or a child from a queer family older than me. I know they're out there, but, yeah, there's not. There's not a lot of us. And you look back at the experience of it at that point, it was pretty repressive. It was pretty hard to have that kind of family, especially I was born before IVF was available. I would like to think it's got easier and that people have um, more freedom to have that kind of family and they have more kind of idea of how you can have that family and it'd be a really positive, happy thing. But, yeah, that wasn't around when I was growing up. So I, I think I've become more grateful writing the book and thinking about it, how much my, my work my mother put into building that environment for me.
1: And she left, I think, a great legacy for you around parenting as well because you've kind of, you know, I guess, taken all those really great bits from queer parenting and have been able perhaps to kind of, you know, use them as a parent yourself.
3: I hope so. I mean, my son's only um, 14 months old, so, you know, I might, I might stuff him up yet. Yeah, I might do a terrible job, but so far it does seem... Yeah, it's almost like I feel like I've got a bit of a compass there about how not to get sucked into some of the ideas about how you're meant to raise a boy and how you're meant to be a father. And I often find myself sort of thinking back on how my mother would have approached things as a guide, yeah.
1: So you must kind of, you know, feel really comfortable around the queer community.
3: Yeah, I guess so, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've grown up to be a pretty bland heterosexual man, but... Yeah, probably more so than... I mean, it is a pretty welcoming community. Like, it's, it's. A, I've always found it a very welcoming community. This idea that there's, like, feminazis and, you know, butch lesbians out there who hate men, I've never really seen it. I think it's just like there's a... If anything, I find the queer community is probably more welcoming than a lot of other parts of the community. I think it's like a community that has historically dealt with a lot of shit and has had to deal with a lot of being excluded and is turn that into some really positive values that the rest of us could probably kind of pick up and carry on.
1: Your mother must have really shaped your politics uh, and given you a very egalitarian sense.
3: I mean, she was pretty pretty good socialist as well, and also my grandparents, because I think they, they'd grown up in a kind of weird sort of Methodist cult. You know, there's a lot of, like, Methodist um, working class, you know, so that sort of grimness in Adelaide, Um, And they broke away from their church when they were like 15, 16, ended up sort of becoming atheists and were maybe not, you know, overt socialists, but had that kind of politics. And you can see that running through my family. And it was was a good way to grow up. Like, I think it helped offset some of the material kind of wants because you had this way of contextualizing it and thinking about it and not um, assuming that everything was your own fault.
1: I loved reading about your grandparents in the book, you know, the fact that they kind of, you know, built a house in the forest themselves that your mum mm. and her siblings grew up in. But also, I loved your grandmother in particular. Um, there's that great kind of scene that you recount in the book when your mother came out to her and gave her, gave her a pamphlet on having a lesbian daughter, and she said, I don't need a pamphlet to 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 have a lesbian daughter. You know, have you got a pamphlet on having a, a tidy daughter?
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had a lot of clashes because my mother was incredibly messy and my grandmother was very, very clean. But my grandmother's pretty amazing. Like she's, 90, she's 94. She still lives alone in the house that they built when they were in their late teens. And, yeah, just kind of, I think, almost sort of intuitively understood progressive politics and that people have a right to decide who they want to be. So when my mother came out, like, well, you know, it's your job to, and your right to make decisions about who you are. And she was very supportive.
1: Did you call your mum mother as you, were, as you were growing up?
3: When I got into my teens and my early twenties, it kind of became like a bit of a jokey term, like I would call her mother. When I was younger, I called her the you know, mum and mummy. But yeah, it became this sort of—I think I kind of liked the formality of it. This idea that this sort of—you um, know—a pretty poor, kind of working poor family that we would have this kind of formal way of speaking to each other.
1: It's interesting because the house did really seem enchanting. Uh, it must have been a great place to grow up. It must have been, you know, really fertile for your imagination.
3: Yeah, I mean, I mean, the soil was was incredibly fertile. She spent a lot of time getting the right mixture of mulch and you know leaf muck in there, and it was a wonderful place to play. Like it did, you know, like she didn't sort of say, "Oh, you can't go in this part of the garden, or you can't do this." So I would go out and dig massive holes and build castles and do all this kind of stuff. But there also wasn't really anywhere else to go. Like the rest of the neighborhood was just roads and you know, suburbs. Um and I wasn't into sport, which I guess would have been the only other kind of social activity out of there. So yeah, it was very yeah, it was very weirdly fortunate. I don't think people should have given enough credit to people like my mother for how inventive they are and how resilient they are in the face of yeah, you know, circumstances that aren't always that great.
1: Did you find that living in that house, on reflection, do you think that's what made you such a great writer?
3: She was very encouraging of me doing any kind of art or writing. And I think she was quite literate. Like she'd done, went back to college when she was a bit older and did courses in life writing. And my family, my grandmother's a very big reader. Like she still reads a lot. So there was always this sort of encouragement. I think probably either she or my grandmother, in different circumstances would have been the ones writing books. But, yeah, you know, they that wasn't something that their circumstances ever allowed. So when I started doing it, um, they were very supportive. It was almost like it was good to see somebody in our family kind of get to a point where they had the cultural capital and the time to sit down and write a book. Um, my grandmother, I, I sent her first copy, and I thought I didn't hear from her for a while, and, and she's not she's she's lovely, but if she disapproves of something, you know about it. And then I got a call from her and she had loved it. She really enjoyed it. Um, found it quite emotional. And it was a great relief. It's a great relief to know that she had enjoyed my writing.
1: How do you think your mother would view the book? How do you think Dimity would, would, would view our Mother and I?
3: I would started talking to her about it when she was still alive. Because initially, I started writing this book thinking it was going to be kind of a light comedy. And then... Um, yeah, after she died I hadn't finished it, I sat down and sort of effectively rewrote it from scratch. But I think she was quite excited about the idea that you know, we would have a book documenting what it was like being, you know, a queer family in the in the nineteen eighties, especially yeah, the rest of her life had been taken up listening to sort of negative portrayals of what it was to be a queer woman and a, a single mother. So the idea of, yeah, there being a positive portrayal out there of us actually getting to tell our own story rather than having it sort of told to us by conservatives and you know, sort of some of that kind of political right wing, she was very encouraging of it, yeah.
1: She was a great activist. Just, you know, she lived her life as an activist, you know, just by raising you and living in that environment and being in that neighbourhood, um, it was very much an activist. She was a natural activist. A rebel.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you kind of had to be. I think if you came out in 1980 and if you decided to be a sort of unrepentant single mother in 1980, you sort of had to have a pretty strong sense of activist politics. And, you know, when we had a funeral, we had all the other, all of the friends were there. You know, so this is women who were coming out before it was legal. Um, yeah, there's, there's strong personalities who are used to having to fight for their rights. And they're they were, yeah, quite... And they were inspiring and also inspiring in the sense they'd not only done the things they'd done, but most of them had stayed pretty happy about life. They, they had a very um, upbeat, optimistic way of looking at the world that often seemed out of sync with some of the, the, the struggles they'd had to go through.
1: You mentioned comedy. There's some great comedic scenes in the book, especially later in your mother's life when she was washing her feet in the salad bowl. I loved that. <laughs> And how she um, kind of went back to her kind of like childlike state almost, you know, in, in her final weeks as well, when she was dropping rubbish everywhere.
3: Yeah, I mean, she dropped rubbish everywhere, everywhere all through her life. She was very, <laughs> you know, she, I think she kind of viewed, you know, there's like a, the, there was a movement against housework in the like factions of socialist feminism in the 70s. And she really took it to heart. She thought housework was the most stupid thing in the world. She didn't understand why anyone would do it. And when she was, as she got older, she just became less and less, you know, apologetic about it. So she was just, yeah, created chaos. It was great.
1: so what's next for you on the writing front?
3: Um, so I've had a son and kind of become almost the polar opposite of my mother, like a kind of heterosexual man in a, in a nuclear family. And then I've taken a lot of the learnings from her life and me writing about her and into trying to be a, a decent parent. So I think I'm going to I'm trying to write a book on that, like almost a sort of a follow-on about, you know, how I've tried to take her values into parenting.
1: Yento where Mother and I, is a fantastic tribute to your mom. It's a great record of your life in the 80s and 90s with her. Uh, it's really wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today on 3CR. Well, thank you
3: so much. Thanks for having me.
1: Yento where there. And yeah, it really is a superb book. Thoroughly recommend it, Mother and I. Jacob is up next with the Friday Rave. We'll catch you next week on In Your Face. In Your
6: Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.